You're listening to the Black Duck Voices podcast, propagating the richness of Black Southern culture by sharing stories from and about Black folks down South. I'm Adina White. And I'm Kara Wilkins. On today's show, we're commemorating the 100th anniversary of the 1919 Elaine Massacre. New Orleans native Dr. Brian Mitchell is a history professor at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. He spoke to us about the massacre, the events leading up to it, and the residual effects it has on the community today. The Elaine Massacre took place in a small town in Arkansas called Elaine, and we are Arkansas natives, and it's something that we really didn't know much about until recent years. It definitely <clears throat> wasn't discussed in schools or in the history books. Right. I will say for myself, um, I've always heard about Elaine, but it really more so is in the context of the contentiousness that's happened in the community since the riots mm-hmm. in terms of how people talk about it and, um, you know, who really um, kind of was affected by it more so than the actual event itself. Elaine is located in Phillips County, Arkansas, which is part of the Delta. It's on the eastern side of our state and runs alongside the Mississippi River. The soil was rich there, making it a popular area for plantation owners and, of course, the people that they used to work those plantations, which were the enslaved Africans. Elaine is located on the outskirts of Helena, West Helena, and that plays a large role in the tense race relations that have occurred. Though the massacre took place 50 years after slavery ended, to fully understand what happened, you have to know what led up to it. Immediately following the Civil War, white plantation owners found themselves having to pay what had been formerly their slaves to work on their plantations. And this worked because federal troops were sent down um, by the government to make sure that the slaves were paid and treated fairly. But the second Reconstruction ended and those federal troops were withdrawn. Plantation owners began trying to uh, get the, the former slaves back into a situation that was much akin to, to slavery. So what happened was the slave owners would parcel up their plantations. Slave owners who agreed to work the land would have a place to live. A former slave shack. And then they could borrow money from the company store. The former plantation store. And then at harvest, the workers would receive a share of the crop. Which is why they're known as sharecroppers. Right. But it was hardly ever a 50-50 split. What would normally happen is the sharecroppers would borrow money or supplies from the store. And at the end of the season, they had no choice but to sell the cotton back to the plantation owner. Dr. Mitchell said it wasn't uncommon to see people paying nearly 300% interest for a growing season. At the end of the growing season, the slaves or the former slaves, now sharecroppers, would receive nothing. Uh, They'd be told that they're in debt. They'd be told that they could square up this debt by working the next year in hopes of making a profit that year. In this way, plantation owners kept uh, the sharecroppers perpetually in debt. And generation after generation of sharecroppers worked this land Um, receiving nothing or hardly anything. So why not just leave? Dr. Mitchell says a lot of his students ask that question. There are a number of reasons why. First, the local law enforcement would enforce these agreements and bring people back and force them to work. And if you did leave, the little that you had, farm animals, equipment, clothing, would be taken by the landlord. And then there was always the constant threat of intimidation and violence. 
Also, there weren't a lot of opportunities for black people back then. So mm-hmm. even if you did leave, where are you going? What are you doing? Dr. Mitchell says in Elaine, a number of black sharecroppers were being abused. Many of them had just returned from World War I and were looking for opportunities because they had had a chance to see what freedom and opportunities could look like overseas in Europe. He told us about one specific sharecropper named Frank Moore, who was one of the leaders of the union. Frank Moore worked on the Archdale farm. And what Frank Moore realized is on the Archdale farm, um, when they got all of the cotton planted, when the cotton was growing well, and it was just a month or two to harvest, they were told that they no longer had credit at the store. And for many uh, sharecropping families, they they had, they were forced to leave. They couldn't eat. Uh, they couldn't take care of their families. So they abandoned the crops in the field. Um, this meant that Archdale got to keep all the money. And he was actively trying to run all these sharecroppers off by telling them they no longer had credit at the store and then claim all of the cotton that they had left in the fields for himself. Well, Frank Moore isn't going to let this happen to him. And he continues to work, um, and he continues to work because he's able to pool resources with his neighbors. When he gets sick and he goes to Mr. Archdale for money to see the doctor, Archdale tells him no. And he realizes at that point that the only people he could really truly rely on were his black neighbors. They get together and they join a union called the Progressive Household and uh, Farmers Union. And this union pooled their resources uh, to hire attorneys in hopes of suing the plantation owners. And the plantation owners will get wind of what's going on. And the way they get wind of what's going on is very important to the narrative. Uh, It isn't white people that tell on the the sharecroppers. There are other sharecroppers that are sent in to spy on the black sharecroppers in the union. Mm-hmm. And they report back to the city elite uh, who's meeting, where they're meeting, who's attending these meetings, and what's being said. So once the elite find out that there is a meeting that they have planned at a small church uh, a few hundred yards off the road uh, called Hoopspur, at a little turnaround called Hoopspur, they decide that they want to uh, ambush this or, or sneak up on this meeting. And here are where the details get muddy. Right. We know there was a shootout and two white men are injured. But the story is different on each side. White newspapers say that the officers accidentally made their way to the Hoopspur church. We now know that's a lie. The black narrative is that groups of white men came, surrounded the church, and fired in the church to intimidate or kill the leaders. Nevertheless, two white men were injured, and as these two white men were brought back to town, a narrative was created, a fictional narrative, that they had been attacked, and that the farmers, um, who were doing nothing more than organizing themselves to get what was owed to them, where they were told in this new narrative that those men had been planning a revolution. Uh, and this revolution was meant to take over the county 
and then move and take over the entire South. Once the narrative gets out, it's sent by telegraph operators to neighboring counties and states. It's also sent to the governor's office. Then the governor contacts the Department of War. The Department of War authorizes 500 troops sent from Camp Robinson, which is just outside the capital city of Little Rock, to Elaine, which is about 118 miles away. Hundreds of people pour in. The American Legion and, and Helena mobilizes. The sheriff opens the armory and gives the American Legion members guns. Um, posses pour in from Mississippi and Tennessee and neighboring counties. And as Colonel Jenks, who was the commanding officer of the army unit that sent down, will write, uh, when he arrived with his 500 troops, the city was filled with white men, all carrying guns. He said there are hundreds and hundreds of white men everywhere carrying guns. Uh, all of these people began shooting, killing blacks. There are rumors that blacks are shot working in the field, that uh, blacks are surprised in their cabins and are killed and massacred. Uh, and blacks begin hiding out in the swamp in Marsh, hoping that someone will come and help them. And when the soldiers arrive, they initially believe the soldiers are there to assist them. And they come out with their hands up and they're shot. So that's the Elaine massacre in a nutshell. But what happens next is also just as sad. It's very sad. And it's a tale as old as time in America. As Dr. Mitchell explains, there's no reconciliation. The victims become the prosecuted. The leaders of the union are arrested uh, and charged with a variety of crimes. Many of them are charged with the murders of the police officers who were shot and a soldier that was shot. Others are charged with um, attempt assault. Others are charged with night riding, which was a crime that had once been assessed on white terrorist groups that assaulted blacks in the dead of the night covered in masks where they would burn schools, burn churches, and lynch blacks. So they were charged with this crime once associated with groups like the KKK. And going back to uh, Frank Moore real quick, you know, he was a soldier who returned home. So was that pretty common when, um, you know, black people fought in wars, they came home and they kind of got a little more I don't know, a little more inspired or, or bold, emboldened to do more about their situation here because they fought for their country. So is that kind of a theme? Because I think I've heard of another soldier who kind of did something like that. It's it's not just a theme. Mm -hmm. They were told that they would be citizens if they oh, okay. went and participated and, right. for, and fought in wars. They were told the thing that's keeping you guys from being full citizens are you're not um, acting as responsibly as white men are. And if you went mm. to war and fought, then the country would respect you like they respect white men. Uh, so these soldiers came back fully anticipating um, that America would embrace them as citizens, and they didn't. Okay. So it wasn't just an attitude change. They were, it was a promise that was made to them. Yeah, they were misled. And they were, were not right. just misled by the government, but misled by their own leaders. And some of the leaders that we know and love today uh, were agents that, that uh, I don't want to say were actively working for their government, but were encouraging black people to go out and participate. I saw in the American Prospect, um, you were quoted in that, and it talked about how Phillips County, Arkansas, is 
the 15th poorest county in the U.S. And yes, how a lot of is. that, yeah. And they were saying, their argument is that a lot of that can be traced back to the massacre. But you were saying that before we start talking about reparations um, for a post-Civil War thing, we need more historical evidence. So talk to us about what that looks like, that evidence, and what are your thoughts in general on, on giving reparations for things like this? First of all, I think that the people in Elaine are due reparations, but for a whole entirely different reason. And mm-hmm. we'll have to start there. When sharecropping was popular and sharecropping was necessary, they needed manual labor. They didn't have mechanization. They didn't have tractors. They didn't have implements that we use every day in farming. What they used instead was raw manpower. And this is what blacks were to them. Nothing more than raw manpower. Now, as these implements were created through innovation, uh, they simply threw blacks aside. And if you would, imagine you have a pair of hedge clippers at your house. And then you get an electric hedge clipper. You just merely put that hedge, that manual hedge clipper back in your garage or in your shed or in your basement and you forget about it. And in essence, this is what happened across the rural South. Blacks were, once uh, tractors came around, once uh, mechanized farming happened, they were just thrown to the side and forgotten. And that's a problem because... Uh, They're owed something for that. And when we talk about the wealth that was built, when we talk about those communities today, those communities are still surrounded by farms, which uh, they they no longer need their labor. These farms, the, the property, the land there is still owned by the same families. And those families have now leased that land to corporate farms and are making still lots of money but the people who they require who they needed for work uh for two centuries three centuries there they no longer need so they're just sitting there and they're starving to death imagine being surrounded by farms but none of it is food stuff for you imagine that these people are owed something Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're owed something by these families that they broke their backs for, these families that exploited them um, generation after generation. And that that has nothing at all to do with the massacre specifically. Now, what I did say, what a lot of people have quoted me about, is the notion of families suing because they were harmed by the massacre. And to do that, first we have to prove that your ancestors were in Phillips County at the time of the massacre. We have to prove that they were killed in the massacre or that they were uh, raped or or some other way uh, abused during the massacre. And the problem with that is we've not recovered a single body. We know lots of people died, but we haven't recovered a single body of anyone that died in the massacre, any black person that died in the massacre. Um, So making this connection between a person that died and the massacre is very, very difficult. We also have the problem of people who fled. And there were a lot of people who fled the area. 
And how do you connect people who no longer even remember that they had once been in Elaine to a place? If your great great if your great great grandmother lived there and you didn't talk to her and she didn't share the story about how they got to Detroit or how they got to Chicago or how they got to Topeka or how they got to St. Louis, you don't know what happened. And that's why it's so important that families share personal histories, Um, not just the happy things, but the tragedies that happen, because these are all important and they're all a part of our narrative. These are great words of advice from Dr. Brian Mitchell, history professor at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And I just, on a side note, I just want to say, as somebody who studied history, I agree with Dr. Mitchell that, you know, a lot of times we don't tell the stories. And, and it is, there is a argument to be made that the people of Elaine, who are still suffering economically because some of these tragedies, do have a valid point of having something done to help that community become a thriving place once again. And the massacre is part of a larger conversation of the disenfranchisement that has happened in that community historically, um, you know, before the massacre and even leading up until, you know, the civil rights movement. And even now, I mean, if you go to Elaine, it's a it's an economically distressed community and they do need support. And so I think the larger uh, question is really you know, not maybe necessarily giving reparations for the massacre, but giving reparations for the community as a whole to be able to be a place where people can go and actually rebuild and um, grow the community. Yeah, that's true, because a lot of times the reparations conversation kind of stops Mm -hmm. with slavery. But as we can see, this happened after emancipation. So it's, it's really a very complicated issue. And we'll learn more about the importance of sharing this history. Like, as we mentioned, we were born and raised in Arkansas. We didn't really hear much about this. So we'll learn the importance about sharing that family history on our next podcast. And we're going to have part two of this conversation with Dr. Mitchell, as well as another 100-year commemoration that is a much happier note. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. You can also listen to the Black Belt Voices podcast on most streaming platforms, including Spotify and Google Play. This episode was produced and edited by Katrina Dupins with theme music composed by Princess Dupins Jr. Be sure to follow Black Belt Voices on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Belt Voices and visit blackbeltvoices.com. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.